Laurie, guess what? What? After um, after Brexit, um, me and my friends were a bit sad, and then we played the Spice Girls' Goodbye. Can you hear that one? That's not a good way to cheer yourself up. And for about three weeks, I just kept getting in my head, and I was just like... What's that other sad one called Goodbye by James, James Blunt? Did I disappoint you? You'll have to you'll have to yeah, sing yeah. it because I don't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I don't know either. Never heard it. That's <laughs> what they all say. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the weekly economics podcast in post Brexit Britain. Cameron is gone. Osborne is gone, but we are still here, thank goodness. And this week, I'm joined by Laurie McFarlane, an economist here at the New Economics Foundation, to help us unravel what our new Prime Minister, Theresa May, yes, a woman, has in store for the British economy. So we'll have a new Prime Minister in that building behind me uh, by Wednesday evening. Thank you very much. I have just been to Buckingham Palace, where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government. Reducing the deficit until we eliminate it altogether and run a surplus. Many moments after the old Chancellor left Downing Street, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer walks into the Treasury. Hello. We should no longer seek to reduce a budget surplus by the end of the Parliament. We will have an opportunity at the autumn statement, if necessary, to reset fiscal policy. We're going to have not just consumers represented on company boards, but employees as well. There is an irrational, unhealthy and growing gap between what these companies pay their workers and what they pay their bosses. And we will make Britain a country that works not for a privileged few, but for every one of us. That will be the mission of the government I lead. And together, we will build a better Britain. So, hi, Laurie. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be back. Well, <laughs> you seem more chipper than you should, Laurie. Uh, so, a lot has happened since we took our little break after Brexit. Today, we're going to focus on our new government and what that means for the economy. Firstly, can you give our listeners a little summary of what has happened to the government since David Cameron resigned? So, it's certainly been a crazy few weeks uh, in the mad world of British politics. So if you rewind back to the 23rd of June, when, as we all know, the UK voted to leave the European Union, David Cameron then said that he was going to step down. Um, He said that we'd have a new Prime Minister by September. We therefore had a Tory leadership contest. And very quickly, however, most of the candidates, particularly the Brexit leaders, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Andrea Leadsom, either self-destructed or sabotaged each other. Um, And eventually we were left with Theresa May as effectively the last person standing, and she was uh, coronated on the 13th of July. Um, She then wasted no time in uh, reshuffling the cabinet and making some new appointments. And I think most significantly, George Osborne was sacked um, with apparently little sign of affection. Word on the street is that Theresa May was not a big fan of George Osborne. Um, And she replaced him with Philip Hammond as the new chancellor, who spent two years as foreign secretary. 
We also had David Davis appointed as the new Brexit secretary. Um, Brexitary? A Brexit, a Brexitary. Oh, that's nice. Um, and interestingly, we also had Boris Johnson appear as the foreign secretary, much to the bewilderment of much of the international community. People so. all over the world. <laughs> so um, before we turn to uh, the politics, some of which you've just alluded to, let's talk quickly about the economy specifically. So we saw some turmoil in the financial markets straight after the referendum vote. Uh, people can check out the post-Brexit podcast with Olivier Vardacoulias uh, if they want to know more about that. So how are things holding up now? Well, immediately after the Brexit vote, we saw a decline in the value of the pound to the lowest point over 30 years. Since then, it has recovered uh, marginally, but it's still well below where it was before the vote. So what that probably means is that the price of imported goods will likely go up. It also means if you're lucky enough to be going on a summer holiday, which uh, I'm not, it means that your pounds won't get you as much as they would have done before uh, the EU referendum. We also saw some uh, falls in the stock markets, but actually on aggregate, the main indices have actually recovered since then. That does disguise some big differences between companies. So, uh, for example, like the banks, uh, state agents and construction companies have all uh, taken big hits and are still much lower than they were. But conversely, there are some companies like mining and oil companies who have actually done quite well since. So on aggregate, the stock markets are actually looking uh, not too bad. So overall, I'd say things have calm down somewhat in the financial markets. I think there's still a bit of a question mark over the future of the property market. I think we'll see some uh, significant slowdown in the commercial property market, but uh, there are some signs as well that we might see some uh, house price reductions over the course of the coming months. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Back to the government. Uh, as you said, Theresa May is our new prime minister. Last week was uh, will forever be called May Day. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, what hints has she given about what she wants to do with economic policy while she's in charge? It's been quite difficult to gauge her views on economic policy, partly, well, mainly because she, for most of her senior political career, she's been in the Home Office, uh, both in government and also in uh, as a shadow minister. But we can get some indication from her actions so far. And I think the first clue has been in the restructuring of government departments. I think there's some bad news here, but there's also potentially some uh, glimpse of good news. The bad news is that she has abolished the Department for Energy and Climate Change completely, and climate change now doesn't appear in the title of any, uh, of any of the government departments. So that's quite worrying, a sign that she maybe doesn't see climate change as, as a priority. The more promising news is that she's created a new department called the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, and that merges the previous business and energy departments and revives the, uh, the, the term industrial strategy, which has been a, a bit of a political faux pas since the sort of late 1970s. So that's, that's an interesting uh, development. And it does indicate a sign that she may take a slightly more interventionist approach to the economy and a shift away from the view where government ministers essentially saw them uh, their role is sort of stepping back and letting the market rip, which was very much the approach of, uh, of George Osborne. Um, and I think it might also be a tacit admission that actually George Osborne's um, promise to rebalance the economy and generate uh, a march of the makers and all that, that kind of stuff has, has failed and that she thinks that something more needs to be done. Um, she's also talked of uh, boosting investment in infrastructure by issuing some uh, government-backed infrastructure bonds. And I think that would certainly be a, a, a positive step forward as well. So I think in amongst all of this, there are, there are some 
tentatively promising signs. Okay, nothing like a uh, strategy after everything that's happened over the last few weeks. Um, Theresa May talked a lot about tackling injustice in her first speech from Downing Street and that growing gap um, that we've talked about before between bosses and workers. Uh, what do you think her plans are to tackle inequality in our society? It was a bit strange, her first major speech. It did sound... Uh, a, a little bit Miliband-esque, if that's a, a phrase. Um, and it did put social justice rhetoric, at least, at the heart of it. Um, she mentioned a, a couple of specific things. So she talked about changing the way that big business is governed and, and, specific, and specifically putting uh, representation of workers and consumers on the boards of big businesses. I think we should be a little bit wary. The previous government had a habit of adopting progressive terminology, but then applying it to something rather different. And a classic example of this was George Osborne's uh, living wage. So it'll be interesting to see whether uh, where she goes with these policies, as well as the industrial strategy as well, as to whether it is what we think it is or whether she, she takes it into something else. So how will Brexit um, then, do you think, impact her strategy? Um, should we expect to see some kind of emergency budget soon? The new Chancellor, Philip Hammond, has ruled out an emergency budget. So in contrast to the warnings we had from uh, his predecessor, George Osborne, of a, of a Brexit budget of spending cuts and tax hikes. Um, and he has said he's intended to basically follow the, the current spending plans, at least to the autumn statement. Now, this could change in theory if something major happens and there's some sort of uh, crisis before then. But in reality, we're not really going to get any robust data on what's actually happening in the economy until about the autumn time anyway. Um, so I'd, I'd be surprised if we did see a, a budget before the autumn statement. OK, so um, as you said, our new chancellor is Philip Hammond. Uh, if there was uh, what we called Osborne om Osborneomics before, uh, what do you think Hammondonomics looks like? Uh, I think, well, first of all, I think Hammondonomics is a terrible name. I think we should Trade really luck. try and collectively come <laughs> up with something a little bit better. <laughs> Bagsy. <laughs> maybe, our, maybe our listeners can send in some submissions and uh, we can try and get a new name in circulation. Hammondonomics. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I think he's he's made it clear. First of all, he has made it clear that tackling the deficit is still uh, a big priority, as it was under George Osborne. But he has sort of signalled the importance of investment in skills and infrastructure, echoing what Theresa May has said. I think we may see a change in at least in rhetoric. I think he'd be quite keen to try and make a, a distinction between him and George Osborne um, and try and distance him from George Osborne in some way. And that may involve pulling back on some of the more outlandish proposals from George Osborne. But whether that will actually translate into a fundamentally different economic strategy, uh, I'm less certain about. Interestingly, in, uh, in his first exchange with uh, the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell, in the House of Commons, he said that he, he doesn't believe in the magic money tree. Will the Chancellor now take this opportunity to put an end to what is becoming a lost decade of austerity and deliver the public investments that can provide the well-paid, secure jobs across the country and scrap an anachronistic fiscal rule? Uh, well, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, since this is our first uh, outing together, let me take the opportunity of making clear to the Honourable Gentleman that I do not believe in the money tree. Uh, I am clear that we have to pay our way in the world. We have a very large fiscal deficit that we have to address. Which is interesting because there are rumours currently swirling that the Bank of England is contemplating another round of quantitative 
easing. And if they did that, Hammond would have to authorise it. So uh, difficult to authorise something if you don't believe in it, but hey-ho. Yeah, uh, we here all believe in the magic money tree, of course. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of talk uh, of the government abandoning its target of a budget surplus by 2020. Do you think that's going to happen? And does that mean the end of toot-toot austerity? I think the first thing to say on this is that the idea that the government was ever going to achieve uh, a surplus by 2020, as George Osborne had set out, was not only economic incompetence, but it was also a a fantasy. Um, (laughs) Not a very sexy fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) No. Quite a, yeah, quite an acquired taste of fantasy. I mean, it it really depended on meeting borrowing targets that he'd already missed, achieving unrealistic growth. It also depended, interestingly, according to the OBR, on the arrival of nearly 2 million new uh, immigrants over the next couple of years, which looks increasingly unlikely. George Osborne had also uh, factored in selling the Royal Bank of Scotland and receiving a hefty sum from that. And we know that now they can't do that without um, incurring about a £30 billion loss following the collapse in the share price. So um, so given the impossibility of meeting it, I think uh, it made political sense for them to ditch that target while they could still use Brexit as, as an excuse. As to whether that means the end of austerity... I'm not so sure about that. When challenged by Jeremy Corbyn at the first Prime Minister's questions, Theresa May said that the government hasn't abandoned the intention of achieving a surplus, that she just uh, abandoned the target of meeting it by the end of the parliament. And then when Jeremy Corbyn pressed her on the prospects of further austerity, she responded by saying... But he uses the language of austerity. Can I just say this to him? He talks about austerity. I call it living within our means. So it's still a bit of the, the continuation of the, the, the sort of rhetoric that came from uh, George Osborne. So I don't think we should get too excited about seeing the end. So based on what you've seen so far, do you think the government is doing uh, the right thing to forge a, a new post-Brexit economy? I actually think that there are some very small promising signs, certainly in the welcome contrast to um, George Osborne and David Cameron, but I think they need to be much, much bolder in their approach. So even before the, the vote to leave the EU, the UK economy was still really quite weak. It was a very unbalanced recovery and it had a number of underlying weaknesses. And obviously the vote to leave the EU in many ways has sharpened a lot of these weaknesses, but it's also created a, a set of new risks. And there's some early signs showing that we could be seeing a contraction in economic activity just now. And whether that will turn into a recession or not, we don't know. But as well as that, Many of the areas that actually voted to leave the EU were areas that had been sort of left behind by decline in, in British industry in the 1970s. Uh, and they're, at the most, they're the places that have been suffering the most from cuts. And ironically, they're some of the places who actually benefited most from EU funding. What I would be saying is that it, what the government should be doing is developing a, an ambitious uh, investment strategy, um, basically to, to rebalance the economy towards areas that have been left behind, to actually try and stave off any contraction and possible recession that might be down the road and address the voter concerns and things like health, education, uh, and in, in particular, housing. Oddly, at the moment, the UK actually is issuing bonds at negative interest rates, which means that people are actually paying us to lend us money. So I think to not take this opportunity to uh, launch a, a bold investment programme would be pretty irresponsible um, and also be missing a, missing a trick for, for people up and down the country. 
Well, Laurie, thank you very much for joining us again and for giving us an early analysis on an issue that is no doubt uh, going to affect our lives and the economy uh, for uh, many more years to come. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Big shout out to George Osborne and David Cameron. It's been emotional. Cheers. (laughs) We'll be back at the same time next week. Got a question you'd like me to put to an economics expert? Tweet it to us at Weekly EconPod. So, Laurie, you're not a subscriber to our podcast, are you? I'm not. That's an embarrassing revelation. (laughs) So, um, you might not know how to subscribe, right? I don't think I do. Oh, goodness. Well, it's as easy as this. You uh, simply get out your um, smartphone, whatever one it might be. It's probably an iPhone. Um, and uh, you uh, swipe through your icons until you see the purple one, which is labelled podcasts. In there is the podcast lorry. Fantastic. Cryptic, I know. Uh, and then you'll need to go to uh, the little uh, bottom right corner, which is the search icon, little magnifying glass. Type in weekly economics podcast. Very good. Um, and then it'll come up with all of the podcasts that, that we've produced so far since we started doing this. Uh, you can tap on one to, to play one, but you can also then click subscribe. Subscribe. Yep, little little button uh, top right there. Um, and now that you've done that, you'll get little notifications when a new podcast comes out. Uh, and uh, you'll also be able to go back through and see all of our past episodes um, and um, join our lovely economics family. <laughs> <laughs> That's really easy. I highly recommend it everyone goes out and follows these instructions okay if you're on android i'm sorry um you need to download a podcasting app of your choice i'm sure you can ask the internet which one uh, is the best one uh, and then you can search and subscribe in a similar although not the same way good luck with that The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.